Hi again and welcome back to Trapped History. I'm Carla O'Shaughnessy. And I'm Oswin Baker. And we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes. In today's episode, we want to introduce you to the radicals radical, Charlotte Despard. Socialist, pacifist, philanthropist, anti-fascist, Irish nationalist and a four-times-imprisoned suffragette. She is truly the Jeremy Corbyn of the early 20th century. (laughs) So who better to join us to share her life than the Charlotte Despard of the 21st century, Jeremy Corbyn himself. Pleasure pleasure to be here. (laughs) What a great, uh, great woman she was. Um, So we'll be hearing more about Charlotte in a moment or two. Uh, But I just wanted to tell everyone about the great season we've got coming up. The Spitfire Women of World War II, alongside Instagram's one and only That Spitfire Bird. The trailblazing broadcaster Una Marson, in the company of the quite brilliant D. Jarrett McCauley. And the at times unbelievable story of empire, commerce, contagion and religion that is the 19th century Hajj as told by the devil's own biographer, yes really, Peter Stanford. Carla, it's great to be back here for season three. It is, Um, yes. MK, MK's our engineer, everyone. Lovely to be here again with you. Lovely to be back with you. We hear he's on his third cup of coffee already, yeah. MK. Sufficiently caffeinated. <laughs> Sufficiently. <laughs> caffeinated, that'll get you through the rest of the day. Uh, the next couple of days, I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, I know it's a bit cheeky, um, but how are you with being described as the Charlotte Despard of the 21st century? embarrassed because um, I think she was an incredibly brave woman who stuck her neck out in lots of ways and clearly went through amazing emotional conflicts Um, and she reminds me very much of Sylvia Pankhurst in the sense that Sylvia coming from the Pankhurst family obviously fell out big time with Emmeline and Christabel who became xenophobic nationalists at the time of the First World War. But Charlotte was actually ahead of, a, ahead of the game there. She fell out with Emmeline Pankhurst ten years earlier <laughs> because she, she decided that Emmeline Pankhurst, whilst a very formidable campaigner for suffrage, she was also a dictator. Mm. And um, Charlotte outed her as a dictator, so she formed her own group in much the same way that Sylvia Pankhurst, when she fell out with her mum and her sister, said it's working-class women that need the vote and working-class women that will benefit from the vote. And I said, and so what what are you going to do about it? She said, goodbye, I'm going to the East End of London to work with the women. And did. They probably met in HMP Holloway. Today, Carla, we have the two lives of Charlotte Despard, and, yes. and, and that duality is really important, um, and we'll be coming back to it again and again throughout the show. I mean, remember, we're, we're called Trapped History because of something the great writer and social activist James Baldwin once said, people are trapped in history, and history is trapped in them. And for me, that, that sort of the, the big capital H history of movements, ideas, wars and revolutions. That's the people are trapped in history bit. But the history is trapped in them bit is the small, lowercase history of family and feelings and memory. And mm. and both of those histories, the ones we're trapped in and the ones which are trapped in us, both of those, I hope, will help us tell Charlotte's story. Which begins in another age, in 1844, when Charlotte's born in Edinburgh. Morse code was invented that year. 
The Penny Black, the world's first postage stamp, came out four years earlier. The first steamship a year before that. London's first passenger railway line three years before that. The Industrial Revolution's at its height, but this is still a world of the horse, a world of carts, of barges and of sailboats. It's a really slow world. No one has heard of Karl Marx, let alone Charles Darwin. The Communist Manifesto is four years in Charlotte's future, and you'd have to wait until her 15th birthday to read Darwin's Origin of Species. So that's, that's sort of the world we're in, a world of, mm. of change but huge stability as well. Um, but by that time, by the time of her 15th birthday, Charlotte's world has changed irrevocably. She's from a wealthy family, but her father dies when she's 10, and her mother, who had always struggled with her mental health, is, and, you know, there's no other way of, of putting it, she is committed to a lunatic asylum. As Charlotte later recalled... That is a hideous time which I never like to remember. Charlotte's actually a rich young woman, or rather she has the potential to be a very rich young woman because everything at that time is all about marriage. If she marries, she unlocks an inheritance of a whopping £2,000 per year. Um, £2,000 a year. So that, if we, if we do the maths, that is, in today's money, mm-hmm. that's a bit over three hundred grand, £300,000 a year. So, you know, bad. She, she's a catch. Big time, she really is. But despite this massive inheritance, Charlotte knows that something is not quite right. It was a strange time, unsatisfactory, full of ungratified aspirations. I longed ardently to be of some use in the world... But as we were girls with a little money and born into a particular social position, it was not thought necessary that we should do anything but amuse ourselves until the time and the opportunity of marriage came along. Better any marriage at all than none, a foolish aunt used to say. That is so sad. Didn't she try and run away to become a servant at one stage? She she did run away. I think she got to the... She got to the local she town. Got. She got to the local town. She got to the local town, and she had to stay the night in an inn. She was a she was a teenager, yeah. or, or you know, maybe even younger. But it was a life of governesses and and finishing schools and yeah, things like she that. Was probably very very sad and very lonely. Also, the description of the mum. Well, I'd like to know the whole story of her mum. Yeah, we just yeah. we just do not know. Yeah. I mean, who are, who are we to decide that somebody is? a lunatic or not, and then lock them up like that. Mm. I mean, Charlotte also said that, um, and I quote, she felt with hot indignation the disabilities of women. And it's, again, it's that thing of the position that women are in is where they are almost disabled. Yeah. The idea, as you say, that she was a young woman of potentially enormous wealth who was basically told to buy a nice dress, sharp, and stay home till her husband arrives. Mm. And that would be your life, then having a lot of children, and um, that would be it. I mean, what the talents that were lost and wasted by that whole process is something. Mm. And I mean, our, our, our very first episode of Trapped History was about an astonishing woman called Nellie Bly, yeah. who was the pioneering investigative journalist. And one of her first feats uh, was she... Uh, got herself committed to what was then called the New York Asylum for the Insane. Mm-hmm. 
she got herself committed to that so that she could then write an expose about it and she was she wrote an expose and you know the 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 words are are potentially problematic it was called 10 days in a madhouse but it was mm. about how the, the women they were all women were so abused by people who were apparently meant to be medically qualified and 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 her you know her expose did change the way the the, the new york um, mental health system operated, and it changed it for the better. But you know, it, it those is those Victorians is. were cruel on mental health, but also cruel on poverty with the workhouses. Mm. Mm. If you're poor and couldn't sustain yourself, then you're basically treated as a prisoner and a criminal. Mm. I mean, Charlotte's experience and 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 her her anger about the way that women were treated it doesn't stop her marrying. Money begets money, and, and boy, does that happen for Charlotte. Mm. And we should perhaps be clear that Despard is her married name, and yes. it's Maximilian Despard who bestows it upon her. And he'd been a shipping agent in Hong Kong, and in 1865 he invested in a small new fledgling bank there, the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, which we know now as HSBC. Oh, yes, we all love HSBC. So he and Charlotte <laughs> married five years later in 1870, and they're rich, they're footloose, and they are fancy-free sounds as if she had a happy life you know they had they had a very happy married life and they spent a lot of it traveling around the far east to keep an eye on max's business concerns and charlotte does take up that vocation of the wealthy weary victorian wife romantic writing here's a taster from one of charlotte's novels chaste as ice pure as snow by the shores of the surging sea the desolate night around them they stood together and at first so overpowering were the emotions that swept over the man's soul he could think only of this that they were together that she was in his arms safe from harm and danger charlotte had at least half a dozen novels in her how about you well probably like most people i've got various ideas of novels and indeed i've written out the bones of two or three of them. I haven't written them, but, you know, there's a, the storyline and the plot is there. Okay. And they're all focused on local events and local places. So I won't tell you any more than that, because this will encourage me to write it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I find um, literature and fiction and imaginative literature actually a very powerful way of telling history. It's very important, that, that way of trying to find a way of telling stories which resonate with people. Yeah. Um, rather than, yeah, just, the, you know, so the history that I learnt at school, the Tudors, the First World War, all that sort of stuff. So you got, what you got? Normans, Tudors, Victorians, First World War. Yeah. I don't think I did Victorians. Missed out the Victorians. Missed out the Victorians. It's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sad, yeah it? it goes from... Henry VIII to straight up to the Battle first of Mons. <laughs> Nothing else happened in between. Nothing else happened in between. Right. History is a bit awkward, it isn't it? I know it history is, is so awkward, <laughs> and that, I suppose that's one of the, the delights of doing this: that we find that history isn't a simple linear um, uh, series of events. History is complex and. Oh, I don't know, it's very straightforward. There was Normans, there was Victorians. <laughs> yeah, 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 oh, sorry, yeah. Tudors, I don't want to forget them. Don't forget the dinosaurs. The and dinosaurs two world before. wars. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, really. I don't know why you make it so complicated. <laughs> you said it's a tale of two lives, Oswin. Well, on the 4th of April, 1890, Max suddenly dies. 
And at the age of 45, Charlotte is a widow. Like Queen Victoria, she wears widow's weeds or black clothing for the rest of her life. Wherever she lives, Charlotte will carry a bust of Max, place it in the hallway and greet it every morning. And then Charlotte Despard, part two, can begin. I mean, the, the, the change is remarkable. Mm. And again, it, it is this story of two lives, of two parts to her life. I mean, there, there are a few things to get clear, first of all. Remember Charlotte's 300 grand a year? Well, it's now closer to a million. Wow. So she is in very, very refined company. Mm. And in, in fact, it is that refined company which sends her on the journey she now takes. Nobody has this massive conversion from being the wealthy wanderer about her living in luxury hotels to being what she became, we'll come on to that in a minute, without some sort of grounding in it. And uh, Clearly, her childhood upbringing, when she was the poor little rich girl, with no friends, nobody to love her, nobody to support her, sent to one dreadful school after another after another. There must have been something there. I mean, I, th- I think you're right that there is something in the first part of her life which she is then able to sort of vocalise. I mean, she, she said it unleashed, was... Unleashed, perhaps. Unleashed, yeah. yes, yeah. I mean, she said, uh, and I quote, she said, it was only after my husband's death that I was able to give full expression to my ideals. So she obviously had that within her. In terms of what sends her on, on the journey, it is, uh, it's a neighbour of Charlotte's who was the Duchess of Albany, Queen Victoria's daughter-in-law. Um, we all have a you know, Queen's daughter-in-law next door. I know, it's, I know. it's so normal. Yeah. And, which, and, which royalty live next door to you? Oh, I wish. I wish I lived next door to royalty. Why? <laughs> it would mean I'd be in a nicer house. <laughs> um, so the Duchess of Albany, not only was she a neighbour of Charlotte's, but she was also the patron of the Nine Elms Flower Mission yeah, yeah. in South London. And, and, you know, this is ladies who lunch distributing bouquets of flowers to poor families in the slums. You know, it's very, very Victorian. Seeing Charlotte in mourning, she suggests, the Duchess suggests that Charlotte goes along to Nine Elms. And that visit changes Charlotte forever. She puts down her pen and, totally shocked by the poverty she sees around her in Nine Elms, she opens her purse. And she keeps it open, it must be said, for 50 years until it's completely empty. She funds working men's clubs, youth clubs, food banks and health clinics. She becomes a guardian of the Poor Law Union in Vauxhall, improving the lives of thousands of people in local hospitals and workhouses. Again, I'm sure she was totally shocked and Nine Elms would have taken about, even in those days with a horse and trap, 20 minutes to get from the West End of London to there. It's not far, just across the river, Nine Elms. And she would have been living in a relatively wealthy parts of London and a very short distance away seen this dreadful poverty she probably i'm just guessing a bit here thought that that sort of degree of poverty is what you saw in in asia where she'd seen with her husband not what you'd see in britain and she probably was totally truly and genuinely shocked by it Mm. but you know what is it that different today Mm. you can walk from belgravia wealthiest probably wealthiest part of central london anyway you can walk down to the back of Victoria Station in 10 minutes and you'll find dozens of people sleeping rough, mm. people going through the most horrendous experience of their lives. Mm. And it's, um, you know, 
if now this year you took somebody young, carefree, quite wealthy person and dropped them in a refugee camp in Libya, okay, what do you make of it? What do you what do you make of it? Explain this. Mm. They look around and see thousands and thousands of people, poor probably hungry, desperate, lonely, fearful. You think, oh, what are we doing to this world that these people end up in this situation? Mm. And um, anyone with a quarter of a heart and a tenth of a brain would say, well, there's something badly wrong with our economic injustice systems that we end up treating people like this. Mm. And then watch them drown in the Mediterranean. Where's our humanity? And I like to think that Charlotte, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Emily Bronte and so many others were confronted with these levels of inequality in their lives. They saw it, even though they themselves did not suffer it. And it um, changed their way of doing things. Not only does Charlotte open her purse, but she also opens her eyes. The ocean of misery through which I was compelled to wade made me search desperately for some remedy. I determined to study for myself the great problems of society. My study landed me in uncompromising socialism. Well, how could she do anything else? I mean, if you go to the east end of London in that, in that period and you see this disgusting social conditions people are living in. I mean, Lansbury later on challenged all this. Keir Hardy challenged all this. So many other great figures of the Labour movement did, but no society can be at ease with itself with that degree of inequality. Mm. The only answer is a socialist one of redistribution of wealth and power, and that's exactly where Charlotte went to even though she must have known that she came from this incredibly privileged, wealth, wealthy background. Maybe she just had um, sort of massive guilt complex about it. I'm thinking of the equivalence of Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Hmm. She was born into a wealthy family, mm-hmm. um, slave owners, and she grew up with a carefree childhood and a loving establishment of parents very kind and so on and so on and then she was sent to Jamaica as a child briefly to see the family estates saw the slavery and all that went with it came back and started challenging her parents on all of this challenged and challenged and then said she was going to campaign against the slave trade and then her father then stopped being the saint and came became the sinner and said, if you do that, you'll get nothing from us. And she said, I want nothing from you and walked out. Wow. And died in poverty in Italy with Robert Browning. And her great poem is the diary of a runaway slave at Pilgrim's Point. And so I see that as a kind of equivalent mm. of that human rebellion mm. because mm. of the injustice they see. Mm. So I think coming to socialism by a human rebellion is far better than coming to it through an ideological debate. Because mm. it's reality. Yeah. How did you come to socialism? It's obvious, isn't it? Socialism is an obvious way of living. It's obvious that if you want to live in a, a world at peace and sustainable, you have to share things and not your whole being be about exploiting somebody else, be it 
be it the earth, the mind, or the work of somebody else. It is about equality. Is it with you right from childhood? or? Well, my mum and dad were both um, committed, peace-loving, socialist people, but I don't remember them ever lecturing me as a kid. Quite the opposite, actually. They sort of said, make up your own mind, work it out for yourself, <laughs> do it yourself, <laughs> and so on. So they didn't sort of push stuff on me. But then I suppose in another way they did, because they said, look you'll find your way, you'll find what you want to do. Um, but they also exposed me to books a lot. I was very fortunate in that. So, um, And also those kind of values. And so uh, I guess that's... So ideological, yeah, I suppose. I mean, I also, as a late teenager, looked to some extent to that, but I missed out on going to university, which is probably a good thing for me. I mean, I, I think it's only right and proper to introduce... Who's the guy that broke into the studio and joined in? I think it's only right and proper to introduce uh, today's guest. You've, you've definitely heard him already, but we're delighted to be joined by Jeremy Corbyn, Member of Parliament for Islington North for these past 40 years, former leader of the Labour Party, of course, and uh, we will be trotting off Charlotte's various memberships in a moment, but Jeremy has been involved in the leadership of uh, CND, the anti-apartheid movement anti-fascist action, the Stop the War Coalition and the Peace and Justice Project. Jeremy, it's delightful to have you here today with us. Lovely to be here and thanks so much for inviting me. Oswin said we'd be rattling off Charlotte's list of activism. He's very kindly given this very long list to me. Thank you, Oswin. My pleasure. <laughs> it starts off with her joining the Labour Party in its infancy and she's a delegate to the 4th Congress of the Socialist Second International. But from the 1890s to the 1930s, she's involved with, and this is just a smattering of them, so brace yourselves, the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, the Pankhurst's Women's Social and Political Union, the Women's Peace Crusade, the Women's Prisoners' Defence League, the Women's Freedom League, the Women's International League, the Women's Labour League, the No Conscription Fellowship, the National Campaign for Civil Liberties, the Home Rule for India Committee, Sinn Féin, the Irish Women's Council the Revolutionary Workers' Group, the National Canine Defence League and the London Vegetarian Society. You! Well <laughs> what a list. She was good at setting up groups. Wow. Sure. That list was pretty comprehensive. Pretty Jeremy. good, yeah. yeah. I can imagine you might have been in, in quite a few of those groups. Uh, all of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think the women's ones were particularly important because of a mm. challenge to the structure of the suffragette movement, the suffrage movement. And that was kind of very interesting class distinction. She would have been on the side of um, Sylvia Pankhurst and the working class women rather than Emily and Christabel who were on the other side and also ended up supporting the First World War. Mm. I mean, the thing, the thing which really strikes me about this whole sort of life of two halves aspect to Charlotte is um, it, it feels that she has finally found her tribe. I mean, and, and yeah. she later writes... Sometimes I asked myself, can this be the beginning... Is this indeed a part of that revolutionary movement for which all my life long I have been waiting? Um, I mean, Jeremy, how, how important is that feeling of finding your tribe? I think people should never underestimate the importance of community, family, tribe, if you will, um, in, in life. And um, she 
would have been probably a lonely thinker. Because remember, she was very insecure. She had no family to fall back on. She didn't, apart from later her brother, but, you know, she was a lonely woman. Mm. And um, I think when she says she's found her tribe, she found the true loyalty and support for people in Nine Elms. And they would have been, I suspect, very suspicious of a very wealthy woman coming along to give out charity and food and clothing to people. Mm. Because they weren't a community that was looking for charity, they were looking for justice. And so they must have trusted her a lot in the way they behaved towards her and the way it, eventually she gave away all her money, didn't she? Mm. Didn't have anything at the end. Mm. And, and and I suppose another aspect of finding her tribe is she doesn't continue living next door to the Duchess of Albany. She comes and lives in Nine Elms. She yeah. she literally lives above the shop. She yeah. gets a flat and underneath she has... Jones is sort of poverty centre shop, yeah. isn't she, sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. What we today would call a food bank, I suppose. Yes. Charlotte's arrested and imprisoned at least three times while campaigning for the vote. But increasingly frustrated at the autocratic nature of Emmeline Pankhurst, in 1907 she leaves the WSPU to set up the Women's Freedom League, taking around one in four of the WSPU's members with her. Now the Freedom League is just as radical, it's just as militant, but it's also democratic and non-violent. It's no coincidence that around this time Charlotte meets Gandhi, who helps crystallise her thinking around passive resistance. And this is a theory that she puts into practice again and again, especially when she urges women not to pay taxes and to boycott the 1911 and that census. That was when Gandhi was a, law, a lawyer in London, isn't it? Yeah. He was here as a, as a law student at that time, yes, would it be? So. I think it was 1909, I think, yeah. she met him. Yeah. Charlotte also knew the Labour Party leaders, Keir Hardy and George Lansbury. She knew Eleanor Marks, Carl's daughter, James Connolly, one of the leaders of the Easter Rising, and Eamon de Valera, the architect of Irish independence. It feels like in many ways a great time to be a radical. Do you think that's something that we're missing in our world today, Jeremy? Well, you never know when you're in the midst of something that's very big and very important. Mm. Remember the 1960s and all that? Well, you don't, you're too young, but uh, all the <laughs> fantastic music that was around at the time. I lived in Jamaica for a couple of years at that time, and I remember going to this friend of mine's house on a Sunday when he have a few friends around and he said wow it's great this, to be around with this music I said well, what are you talking about it's just music <laughs> it's just just music and he said no no when you get to be old you'll look back on this time as being the most creative <laughs> ever in music quite interesting very perceptive yeah and so yeah. I, I didn't sort of think about that and quite probably those people Young people growing up in Ghana in the 1940s and 1950s when Ghana finally achieved independence, first African country, did you? They probably just thought, oh, it's normal, we're just fighting for independence. They don't, mm. People don't always realise what they're in the midst of, of the, of the revolution they're in the midst of. And she probably just thought, well, life's exciting. Mm. Amazing, she, amazing woman. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, sort of related to that point part of finding her tribe she also sort of loses her tribe at certain times you know she she sets up um uh, organizations and things mm. but she's she and she leaves them but she is chucked out of some organizations and mm. and at one point there, there were moves to remove her from the, the big organization she founded the women's freedom league um how does that feel of sometimes of being pushed aside rejected or thrown out from your family 
thrown out from your tribe? Does that Bu- bureaucracies behave in strange ways, but the people carry on? I I have friends and comrades in lots of places, in lots of organisations, and uh, the principles and the movement and the demands for social justice and socialism carry on, whatever the label. And so, do I feel annoyed? Yeah, of course I do. Who wouldn't? Do I feel I've been let down by some people? Yeah, probably, but I'm. But life's too short to worry your head about individual disloyalty. It's more important about how you take an overall movement towards something better. So um, I can understand her feelings that she'd set up various organisations which then sought to expel her, which seems a bit, seems a little harsh. You'd have thought yeah. they'd given her a cut a bit of slack as the founder, wouldn't you? <laughs> they might have disagreed with her. Yeah. But then um, that was uh, an era of the most intense ideological debates Remember, the Labour Party ended up supporting the First World War. Not straight away, but they did end up supporting the First World War. And the trade unions, by and large, also. And the peace campaigners like her, Lansbury, Keir Hardy, and so on, were deeply unpopular by 1915. Well, Hardy died in 1915, but Lansbury was deeply unpopular at that time, but then came back, became an MP again eventually became leader of the Labour Party. It does, strange things do happen. Odd people become leaders of the Labour Party. <laughs> Charlotte's 70 years old when the First World War breaks out. The leading suffrage groups, including the WSPU, support the war. But Charlotte and her Freedom League do not. She campaigned tirelessly and fearlessly for peace. On seeing her speak in 1918, a reporter from the Evening Standard writes, If fiery eloquence is an asset, I will back the president of the Women's Freedom League against all comers. I think we need to pause for a second, Carla, because there's a rather important piece of information we've glossed over, and it it relates to this two parts of Charlotte's life. I mean, you said earlier that Despard is her married name. Mm -hmm. I think we need to let our listeners know about her maiden name, don't you? Yes, her maiden name is French, yeah, the word French. Um, and, and in the early years of the 20th century, that only means one thing, or actually it only means one person. General Sir John French, GCB, GCVO, KCMG, hero of the Boer War. I mean, there's a whole lot more letters uh, later on. He gets the Order of Merit, he's a privy councillor, field marshal, lordship and an earldom. But crucially for us, John is Charlotte's younger brother. And in 1914, John is commander-in-chief of the British Army as they are bogged down in the trenches in northern France. And so Charlotte's publicly opposing everything he's doing. Yeah, and and I suppose this is where I come back to people are trapped in history and uh, history is trapped in us. Charlotte's personal uh, lowercase h history is really strong, is so heavy for her. Because it's not just that John is want of a better word, pro-war, um, and Charlotte is one of the leading anti-war activists. When the war is coming to an end, in 1918, John is sent to Ireland to be Lord Lieutenant. I think the appointment to Ireland was a combination of they were alarmed at the Easter Rising in 1916, alarmed at the growth of Sinn Féin and the IRA, as it later was called, was called at that time, um, and... Uh, 
he wanted to sort of redeem himself in the eyes of the establishment by saying, I'll go and sort this thing out, knowing the conflict with his own sister, mm. who they had a very strange relationship, mm. very strange, because they, they didn't hate each other, even though they couldn't have been more different in every way. Yeah. He was very supportive of her. In, exactly. when, when she made her first public speech in, I think, 1892... He, she he would was then been nearly fifty, wouldn't yeah, she? Yeah, he was right by her side, and he said, "It's okay to be nervous. Nervous is the thing which powers you through." And then we get to these huge touch points when they're both quite elderly, and 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 you know the the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland role is normally given to an aging politician, um, but John is a is a military man, and he wants this to be a military position. I mean, he sets up an executive council, an advisory council, a military council which they normally didn't do, and he has one objective, to halt Irish nationalism. The possibly apocryphal story is that um, even during the Black and Tans of Civil War and all the horrors that going on in Ireland, she and her brother used to meet, and she'd be earwigging on where the British Army's going to be, what it's going to be doing. So she'd be listening out for the conversations at the tea parties... And passing the information on to her mates in Sinn Féin. Essentially, she gets almost like a, a, a free pass. Yeah. She, she can drive up to anywhere and say, I'm John French's sister, I'm the Viceroy's sister, because he was also called the Viceroy, and then could drive through the police barricades. He called himself the Viceroy. <laughs> he called himself the Viceroy. <laughs> well, he, I mean, and, and in terms of, of trying to halt Irish nationalism, he arrests Sinn Féin's leaders, he bans the party, he dismisses the Inspector General of Police calls for the imposition of martial law, he brings in internment, he survives an assassination attempt, and also he, he brings in the dreaded black and tans, former soldiers from the First World War, recruited in Britain on the mainland, and they became feared for their horrific brutality. Well, at the same time, she's championing Irish nationalism and independence. She joins Sinn Féin, the party her brother has banned. She supports the Republican prisoners who her brother has jailed. And she sets up the Women's Prisoners Defence League, which is eventually declared an illegal organisation. By him. <laughs> it's just, I mean, this is worse than succession. Yeah, and Charlotte's not Irish and she's not working class either. And obviously she wants to root out injustice whenever she sees it. But then she has this complicated relationship with her brother, I mean, how difficult do you think it would have been for her, or do you think she just got on with it? I think she lived in her mind in two parts. Mm. That um, he was probably the only physical link to her childhood. Mm. And so she probably saw it through two prisms. Mm. But she wasn't afraid also to use both prisms to help what she truly believed in, which was the Irish cause. The, the, the trickiness of that relationship, it does eventually break down. And John, now what do they talk John, about when they meet? How was, your, how was your <laughs> week then, John? Oh, yeah, we went down here and we beat the, beat the IRA here. We beat the, and how was your week, um, Charlotte? Oh, well, we took part in this protest and we stopped the British Army here. <laughs> what were they doing, sort of gaming out the war or something? Well, I mean, he it must have been he, the most w weird conversation. Yeah. I mean, he eventually has enough and he cuts off all contact with him. And, and when... Well, you can kind of see why, can't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yes. He was probably yeah. warned off talking to her as well yeah. by his um, staff. Yeah, if he tells her something, it goes immediately to the uh, Sinn Féin. You know you can't trust your sister, um, sir. At the age of 83, Charlotte is classified as a dangerous subversive. 
And I mentioned her purse earlier on. Well, in her 90s, having spent all her money on political and charitable causes, Charlotte is declared bankrupt. She dies in November 1939 at the age of 95. A decade earlier, when the vote was finally extended to all women in 1928, Charlotte had looked back and forward with some satisfaction. I have seen great days, but this is the greatest. I remember when we started with empty coffers. I never believed that equal votes would come in my lifetime, but when an impossible dream comes true, we must go on to another. The true unity of men and women is one such dream. The end of war, of famine, they are all impossible dreams, but the dream must be dreamed. The dream must be dreamed. That must resonate. Brilliant line, brilliant words she's spoken there. Because she did see huge changes in her lifetime. She did see massive improvements. She did see a great deal more social justice. She did see a great deal more understanding of history and the processes that go with it. But she also saw the defeats, all those millions that died in the First World War and the Second World War, all those millions that died of poverty. And um, we're now in an age when millions are dying from poverty, are dying in wars, are dying as refugees. Um, but there are many people that see things very differently. So I see enormous hope around the world of people that want to live in a sustainable environment, want to live in a world free of racism, do recognise that human values and natural values are actually the same thing. So I think we are actually in a time of stress, yes, but also one of enormous hope. And uh, it's always stressful when you're fighting for a cause. But you must never let that stress eat you up and never let personal ambition take over. Thank you very much. You're Jeremy. very welcome. I really, enjo really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. That was really enjoyable. Loved it. You've been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Oswin Baker and Carla O'Shaughnessy. Our engineer has been M.K. Lee, and the Trapped History theme is by Pavlo Buterin. You've also heard the voices of Susan Mars, Chiara Carruthers, and Tim Redman. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trapped History, please tell your friends and give us a rating. It really helps. And head over to trappedhistory.com for bonus episodes, transcripts, the Hall of Fame, and more. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. I don't drink, but I think we should raise a cup of tea to the yes. Charlotte Despard <laughs> pub on the yeah. Archway Road. And thanks to those far-sighted people in the London borough of Islington that named the road Despard Road. Mm. To Charlotte Despard. To Definitely. Charlotte Despard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>